open to John chapter 4. I'm excited to begin a new series with you uh, for the next 8 or 10 weeks as we uh, begin a new year. I hope your new year's is going well. Next week will have been, or next week will be, my first Sunday with you. And if you remember, if you were here, it snowed and church was canceled. And I was told it never snows here on my very first Sunday. And not only did it snow, they canceled church. And so I didn't get to preach. And so then the following Sunday, I was told on Friday, it looks like we may have to cancel church again because another storm's coming. And I said, you guys are putting me on. This is a joke. But next week, we need to pray it does not snow here in Raleigh. This series that we're going to be going into for the next eight or ten weeks is a series where we're going to be looking at zeroing in on interactions that Jesus has with people. And I'm calling this series Encounters with Jesus. And there'll be people of all sorts of walks of life that Jesus will have encounters with. It'll be a time for us to really zero in and and look at from a microscopic level what is happening here. And we're not so much focusing on the people as we are on the Savior. How does he interact with different people from different requests and, and the different ways they would come at him, both good and bad? And today we have our, our passages found in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. And the topic of our message today is related to prayer. And I thought, what better way for us to begin a new year than to discuss prayer? Prayer from the side of a, a, a very needy father but also prayer from the side of our Lord and Savior who listens to prayer and answers prayer. And we'll be seeing what's happening on both sides from the one who's making the prayer request to the one who's answering the prayer. And are there principles we can learn that will impact your lives here today? And I promise you there will be. The person that we'll be examining today is in this encounter with Jesus is a very unlikely man. He's a, a, a noble, uh, a royal official. We don't know if he's a Jew or Gentile. He could very well be a member of Herod's court. He has a high position, a great paying job, lots of money, a family, material possessions, a staff to serve him. It would be very safe to say he's pretty well off. And unfortunately, we know from our own experiences and maybe ourselves are watching others, that it's oftentimes those who are pretty well off who are the most reluctant to go to Jesus. Because it's those who are well off who become very, very prideful, arrogant, self-sufficient, self-reliant. Why do I need God? I have everything that I possibly need or want. So therefore, why would I pursue God? That's the position that this man is in. He's a person who is a very unlikely person to to pursue Jesus. And I want to go ahead and read for you the punchline. I don't do that very often as we walk through a passage. But the second to last verse in this passage tells us this about the man. He himself believed in all of his household. Isn't that amazing? We're about to hear a story about a man who would never go to Jesus on his own. At least the text doesn't show us that he would. But something is going to drive him to Jesus, and not only will he go to Jesus, but the end of this event, the end of this account, not only is the man given faith and set for salvation, but his entire household is saved. So then the question is, if this is the end and this is the beginning and they're nowhere connected or near each other, how do we get the two together? That's the purpose of our event today. Let's walk through this together. I'm going to read the passage, then I'll back up. We'll walk through it together. 
And if you'd like to take notes, I've got lots of opportunities for you to, to write down things and circle words. John 4.43 tells us this. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his own home, hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Verse 46. For he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water to wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the words Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that the son was recovering. So he asked him then the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he, he himself believed in his, all his household. This is a, a salvation believing faith. And they all, and, and, and this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. I have a little map for you if we could put up on the screen. I think Austin's doing our maps today. You can't read these words, and so I put little arrows there. On the top left of the screen is where Cana is. There's an arrow pointing to a very tiny dot just to give you some perspective. It's a map of Israel and the ancient times when Jesus walked the earth. And the second arrow to the right is Capernaum. They're about 20 to 22 miles apart. It would take a long day or parts of two different days to walk that distance. And then at the very bottom arrow is where Jerusalem is, Judea. Prior to this event, Jesus had gone down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And now he's heading back up to his hometown in the Galilee region. And he decides to stop in John chapter 4 in, in Samaria. And this is where he has the encounter with the Samaritan, Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans placed their faith in him and said, Jesus, come stay with us. And so this is where our passage picks up. And we're told that verse 43, after he stayed two days, he departed for Galilee. Just to give you some context. So he was in Samaria. And now he's heading back, continuing his journey to the north. And this is an interesting two verses here, verse 44 and 45. Because there are some people who will say that the Bible contradicts itself. And they will go to this verse, but I want to show you this is no contradiction. The Bible writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knows exactly what he's doing. Look at these words. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So here he is going back to his home region. And then look what the next verse tells us. So when he arrived at Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, how do you reconcile that? A prophet has no honor in his hometown, and now we see he's going back to his hometown, and he's welcomed. And because this is back-to-back, -back, the writer knows what he's doing. What he's showing us here is this was, this was not a proper welcome. This is a, a polluted welcome. There's something wrong with the welcome. 
So what is wrong with the welcome that Jesus received here by the people in his own town? Well, here the, the shortest answer is, is that the, in the next verse we're going to see this. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, this is how they welcomed him. For they too had gone to the feast. They weren't welcoming Jesus because he is Lord and Savior. They're not welcoming him by placing their faith in him. What they saw were signs and wonders. And they didn't want Jesus. What they wanted was more entertainment. They wanted more signs and wonders. In their mind, he'd be equivalent to a Cirque du Soleil has just come to town. And they just want to be entertained and watch what he does. He's putting on a show for them. And Jesus will show us in just a few moments that they don't want him. They're not welcoming him. They're welcoming the things he's doing. And the question is for you and I is, do you pursue Jesus because he, of what he can do for you because of signs and wonders? Or do you pursue him for who he is? He is Lord and Savior of all. And Jesus doesn't want people to pursue him for miracles. That's not the destination. The miracles are just signs to point us to the destination. Jesus is the destination. But it wasn't so much for these people. They just wanted more signs and wonders. Verse 46 tells us this. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. And then we're reminded here by John where he had made water into wine. And that's recorded in John chapter 2. John records just a handful of miracles. He records them so that people will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing they'll have life in his name. And the first miracle that John records was the miracle of the water to wine. And now he's reminding us, the reader, the first miracle happened in this region. And now the second miracle is about to happen here as well. And now we're introduced in the first verse to the problem. What is going to bring about this miracle? What is the trouble that's going to be presented to the Savior? And at Capernaum, this would be a day and a half or two days journey or one full day, depending on when you leave. There was an official whose son was ill. This, this official has everything you could possibly imagine. The, all the state-of-the-art technology, the hospitals, the medicine, the doctors, whatever equipment they had, which wasn't much, he would have had access to everything. But all the doctors and the medicines were not able to help this young man in any way, shape, or form. We don't know how old this child is. We just know he's a child. He's a son. And friends, you know as well as I do that when children, your children are hurting, you want to do whatever it takes to help them. These are desperate times, and desperate times require desperate measures. He is sick, and he's not sick with a cold. He is sick to the point of death. We know from the text that he has a fever. I'm imagining a little boy laying on a, on a, on a mat on the floor who's just sweating profusely. Maybe they're putting wet towels on his head. We don't know what it looks like then. But they're doing everything they could possibly do, and they know he's close to death. There's nothing else that could be done. Well, there's one more thing that could be done. All hope is lost. There's nothing to be done, Mr. Royal Official, until we come to verse 47. Verse 47 tells us, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, how would he have heard? He would have heard because someone would have told him. Someone saw a man who had no hope. Someone saw a man in desperate circumstances. His son is about to die. And they told him about Jesus. What a great picture of evangelism for us, isn't it? 
That when you and I see people in desperate times, in desperate circumstances, what is our role to do but follow the example that's set here and tell people about Jesus? They told Jesus that, they told the man that Jesus had come from Judea and now he's back in your region. This man perhaps could have gone back down to Jerusalem, but that would have been a three days journey each way. How could he possibly make it in time to save his son? But to make it over to Galilee area, this region in Cana, it's only going to take about a day and a half journey. I'm imagining the man just bolting out the door because he wants to be where this miracle worker is. He's hearing all these stories. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's causing those who can't walk to rise up and walk. And he's in our region. Just point me in the direction and I will go find him. Notice that the man is about to go on a a journey. And he's going to ask Jesus for help. And verse 47 tells us that he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son. For he's at the point of death. This word ask in the Greek, it's not a, the tense used here, it's not an ask one time. And this is very important. The picture here is what I'm imagining is Jesus is walking down the road. He's surrounded by thousands of people. And this man, he's not asking one time. He's asking over and over and over. He's begging. This noble, rich man, an official, he's begging a carpenter's son. How embarrassing. He could lose friends. He could lose his reputation. He could lose his job. He could lose everything. If he's caught begging to a carpenter's son for help, but he knows this is the miracle worker and he's willing to do whatever it takes. Three observations we can make about the man's request. Number one is this, that the man uses the word for asking that's repetitious. I just shared that with you. Number two is that he thinks that Jesus must be present to heal the son. That's, that's not good theology, is it? Because we know that Jesus does not need to be present to heal his son. That Jesus could just say the words and the son would be healed. Another bad thinking that the man has is that he thinks that if Jesus doesn't heal the son and he dies, that then it's too late. But we know from John chapter 11 that it's never too late. And even after Lazarus dies, Jesus shows up on the scene and raises him from the dead. These are two thinkings that are not correct for the man. And that's the third point, is if he dies, that death would be the end. 48 tells us, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs. This is an unusual response, isn't it? It doesn't really seem like he's directing the response to the man who just made the request. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This, these yous these here in the text are not singular, they're plural. So let me try some southern translation for us. Are you ready? If we were reading this in the South, and we are, this would be properly translated, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And that's what Jesus is saying. Some Bible translators will say in this particular verse here, unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. He could be speaking to the man and the crowd, or he could just be speaking to the crowd. Because the man is not there to see the signs and wonders, is he? He's not there to see if Jesus fulfills prophecy. He's there for one purpose and one purpose only. He wants his son healed. His son is at the point of death. Isn't it interesting, friends, that the man didn't send a servant? 
to reach out to Jesus because the matter was far more important. He didn't send his wife to reach out as the the head of the household. He says, I'm going to go. I'm the boy's father. And when he kissed the boy and said goodbye, he knew that on this journey that there's a real good chance that when he gets back, this boy could be dead. So he would have said goodbye to this boy for the very last time, possibly. But he's going to go to Jesus. You see, the people believe that faith is seeing. That in order to have faith, you have to see it to believe it. But Jesus is saying, no, faith is believing without seeing. Are you a person who says, I don't have to see it to believe it because I believe God's word to be true? Or are you a person just like the crowd who says, no, 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 I want to be able to see it first. Jesus was rebuking them for having a faith that required seeing at first. That's no faith at all. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven sixteen, and without faith, let me read this slowly, friends, because faith is believing in that which you do not see. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How is the measure of your faith today as we begin this new year? Are you willing to read God's word and put your trust in it and say, Lord, I believe your word, even though the circumstances are different than your word, they're they're inconsistent. I'm going to put my hope and trust in your word and not in circumstances. That's what Jesus is calling this official to do. And verse 48 tells us this. Again, this repetitious, this begging, Jesus, please come help my son. You can almost hear the, 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 the crying out of the man who's in desperate situation. Jesus, I know you're the miracle worker. Please come and help my son. I'm just imagining it in my mind. And look at verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my son dies. Just great desperation. Time is of the essence. The man thinks we have, we have time that is working against us. And not only is there time working against us, Jesus, but we have, we have space working against us. Because it's going to take two days to get you to where my son is. And we may run out of time, but Jesus is Lord of space and time. And the man's about to discover that. Verse 47, the man's continually asking. Jesus tells the crowd that they're only looking for signs. They're not pursuing him. The people don't want Jesus. They want the miracles. And then finally in verse 50, Jesus said to him, and all of us should be hanging on the end of our seat right now saying, what would Jesus say to him? What would God in the flesh who has all power and authority say to him? Well, here verse 50 tells us, go, your son will live. What better words could you hear from the Lord and Savior of all? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in the flesh walking on earth. Some translations translate this Greek text by saying, go, your son lives. It is just a, a positive statement of confirmation and affirmation. It is, it is done. You could take that check to the bank and go cash that thing. It is an absolute. There is no question. Jesus just said, your son lives. And he tells the man to go. And the man could keep on begging. He could say, no, I've got to have you come with me. But that's not what happens. Jesus told this man, your crisis in your life has just ended. And why did it end? Because Jesus just declared it over. With his words, he ended the man's crisis. Jesus' words give life. They give healing. They give comfort. They give peace. 
They give reconciliation. They give restoration. What words do you need Jesus to speak today in your life? What words are you searching for in the scriptures that Jesus would have power over in your life? Jesus, all you have to do is simply speak it and it's done. The man's prayer was answered. Now, how will he respond? Look at his response. We're told the man believed. If you're taking notes, you should circle that word believe. The word believe, pastuo in the Greek, it's going to appear over a hundred times in the Gospel of John. It means to put all of your weight on something. You've heard me say that before and heard it said before. You don't put half your weight on it and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you a little bit and lean on you. Jesus wants all of your weight on all of his word. And can you say that today, friends, that you put all of your weight on all the words from the word of God, that you can believe them wholeheartedly and trust them to be true because they are. This verse tells us that the man believed the word, the, the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't debate him. He takes him at his word. Jesus is the author of life. He is the author of faith, the giver of life. And not only does he heal the, the boy, but he also puts the faith that the man needs to believe inside the heart of the man to believe. Jesus gives him the faith. Verse 51, and as he was going down, this would be heading back down elevation towards Capernaum. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Something happened at an instant. Something happened in, in an instant moment for those servants to burst out of the house. It's more than one servant. We don't know how many, but several of them saw the boy get healed right in front of their eyes. And they take off running to go tell the father. And they meet him about halfway. It was something very obvious that afternoon that changed. The words of the servants validated the authenticity. And they told him the boy was recovering. The boy is healing. He is going to live. Verse 52 tells us, so he asked them the hour. I'm imagining this is just out of curiosity because I would want to know, wouldn't you? He asked them the hour when, the, when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, his fever left him. This would have been about two in the afternoon, between one and three. About two in the afternoon. So it's perhaps at that moment the servants left the house. And the father left Jesus and they began walking towards each other, not even knowing it. And now verse 53 tells us this. The father knew. He believed in his heart with absolute certainty that Jesus had done this. How, does, how do we know? Verse 53 tells us the father knew that was the hour. It was at that very moment when the boy was healed, when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So who gets all the credit, the glory, and the honor? But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It was at that very moment. And notice just by observation what Jesus never asked the man. He never asked him, what's your name? He never said, what's your son's name? He never said, uh, do I, can I have your insurance card and your driver's license? He didn't give him a form to fill out. He didn't even ask him what his address was. I mean, how's he gonna know where the boy lives to send the miracle? Where, what zip code do you live in? Jesus knows. He knows who the man is. Jesus knows our very thoughts. Every thought you ever think, Jesus knows as if you're speaking them out loud. Jesus is God. 
And his, his deity is on display. There is nothing hidden from God. This was a tremendous tragedy, wouldn't you agree? Oh, what a horrible tragedy for this family to go through. Imagine the worry and the anxiety, the sleepless nights as they wake up all throughout the night to care for their little boy to see if he's gotten any better. But every moment his breathing is slowing down and his sweating is increasing and his body is just so on fire from the fever. There are a couple reasons this is good because good came from it. Number one is it got dad to Jesus. This tragedy in this little boy's life got dad to Jesus. And we need to look at tragedies in our life that the Lord may bring. And there's a pattern in the recent passages we've studied that the Lord may bring tragedies to get up a certain person in your family to saving faith in Jesus. Could that person be you? Have you been going through a tragedy and a situation in your life where the Lord is circumventing these circumstances in your life to simply get you in a position where you will finally come to him and cry out to him? Difficult times get our attention, don't they? Tough times help us focus on what matters most in life. Our priorities float to the top and the things that don't matter begin to sink to the bottom. Jim was a sixth man in his 60s in our class in Colorado on how to study the Bible, and he was the chairman of a board of a national bank, which I soon uh, later found out. In our second class, I didn't know Jim very well. There's about 30 adults or so, and he's sitting in the back of the class crying at the end of our how to study the Bible class one night. I went down and sat next to Jim, and I said, Jim, I, I don't know you that well, brother, but what's going on? Everyone else had left the room. He goes, well, I, I need some prayer. My daughter's uh, found out this week, uh, her husband left her and the same day she lost her job and she's been diagnosed with some medical uh, difficulties. And I'm not a prophet and I don't have any words that pop in my head from God or anything, but I just, I just said from patterns of seeing these things in my life before with other people, I said, can I, can I guess something? And I could be dead wrong. But Jim, is your daughter a non-believer and you just started praying for her salvation recently? He said, yeah, how did you know? I said, is it possible that the Lord is answering your prayer by allowing these things to happen to her, to get her to a point in her life where she'll cry out to Jesus? And I said, maybe instead of praying that God will remove these difficulties, that you'll pray that God will use these difficulties to get her on her knees, to give her life to Christ. And I don't know the end of that story. I wish I did. What will it take in your life if you don't know Christ to get on your knees and cry out to him? Because Jesus wants you to know him. He died for you. He took your sins upon himself. We watched last week, probably all of us have saw it by now, the, the NFL star who collapsed on the field. My boys and I are watching it live. And what was so incredible about that, we started praying for this young man. And as we opened up our eyes on the screen, we saw his whole team. The whole team was on their knees in a circle praying on national television in front of all their fans. Fans were praying. And then something that never have I seen before happen on ESPN, of all places, a very secular network. The announcer said, I don't know what to do right now but to pray. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this or not. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, I'm just going to pray right now. And his co-host in the show live said, well, let's just pray. And so the man prayed for about 30 or 40 seconds for this man. And it took this tragedy to get the nation, even just for a few moments, to pray and turn to God. And now this man is recovering, praise God. But the Lord will bring crisis of faith to get people, even if it's a nation, to turn to God. 
This official was a, a father who experienced three levels of progression in his faith. The first, the tragedy gave him a crisis of faith. Many commentators use the same word here. It's a crisis of faith. And what a crisis of faith does is when a crisis comes, it makes you interested and curious about God all of a sudden. Can you relate with that? Or maybe you weren't interested in God until God got your attention. Now all of a sudden there's some interest to travel and meet Jesus. The second movement of faith or progression we see is that the man received confident faith. He went from a crisis faith to a confident faith when God spoke his words to him. When Jesus, God in the flesh, said he'll be well, the man believed and he had confidence in his words. And finally, the the final faith was a confirmed faith. His faith was confirmed when the servant said, your son has been healed. Your son has gotten better. And then finally, in verse 53, we read this. And he himself believed in all his household. There we have the punchline. And now we know how the Lord used this event this tragedy to bring the entire household to faith, including the father. This is a declaration of belief and salvation. This tragedy was a test that led to triumph. And finally, the last verse is, this is now the the second sign or miracle that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So now what's, what's the point of the passage? How do we apply it to our lives? I want to leave you three quick points to ponder, then we'll wrap up in prayer. Number one is this, that a a curse can have a cause and pain can have a purpose. That a curse, what seems like a curse in your life can have a, a very specific cause. It's strategic, it's planned, it's thought out by the Lord. And the pain that you might experience in any given season or our time or months or years can have a very specific purpose, not just for you, but other people in your life as they watch you go through it. Sometimes in our life, we discover that purpose and pain, and sometimes we'll never discover it until we get to heaven, if then. But at every given moment, the Father, our Father in heaven is working everything in your life for the glory of the Son. And for people to come to faith, Luke 15, 10 tells us this. Jesus said, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Imagine the joy in heaven that happened when the man heard this news and began to tell the servants all about what Jesus had done. And then they all got home and they're all so excited. They're telling what Jesus had done. They were witnessing for Christ and we're told the whole household got saved. I shared this story with uh, a class on Wednesday night. I'm going to share it with you quickly. This is, I can't help but think about this story that happened in 2018, October, where a family in Texas where we were living had a little boy in first grade decide to ask his friend if, they, if he wanted to go to the bathroom with them. They got the teacher's permission to go to the restroom during class about one in the afternoon, and the little boys never came back to class. And time passes, the teacher goes to check on them, and the teacher can't find them. They call the school security, the principals, and they can't find them. They call the police. They call the parents. The whole city is out looking for these little boys. And the parents are so distraught. Hours had gone by. Were they kidnapped? Are they okay? Did they get hurt? What could have happened to their two little boys who ran out of school in first grade? Finally, as the father's driving past the Dollar General about two miles away, across from a pizza hut, he turns to his left as he's driving, and he sees the little boy running in between two cars. 
And he pulls in. He's so excited to see his son. The son had gone in the store with his friend, and they stole potato chips and an orange soda. And they were sitting there eating their potato chips and orange soda. Great relief came upon the parents. The teacher was got, received a phone call that night from the parents and said, we're so sorry about what happened. And the mother told the teacher, we think God did this to get our attention. We don't go to church anywhere. We don't know much about religion, but we think we need to find a church. The teacher said, well, I know of a church you could attend. The pastor's really handsome and good looking. (laughs) That's not what the teacher said, but the teacher was my wife. (laughs) And I like my story a lot better. So Wendy invited this family just to come check out our church. And just like you have a history here proclaiming the gospel, we proclaim the gospel. They sat and heard the gospel. And they came and met with me in my office that week, the mother and father and all their their children. And uh, they said, we don't know if God can save us because the daddy said, we've sinned. And we've made a lot of bad choices in our life. And even the kids were hanging their heads. And I walked them through the gospel again and the, the children started crying. I kid you not. The daddy started crying. The mother started weeping. And in one just period of three minutes, the whole family got saved in my office. I've never seen anything like it. We have a picture here. Amen is right. Look at this picture here of Boston getting baptized. We have the first picture there, Austin. He's just weeping uncontrollably in the baptismal. They all wanted to get baptized together because he knows that he is an unworthy sinner and that Jesus died for his sins. And he's so grateful for what the Lord had done. This was October 2018. The next picture here was me with them. You talk about water displacement in a baptismal. (laughs) But they all wanted to get baptized together. It was just the most beautiful picture. And I think I cried, baptized everyone on. The next picture has the whole family. But I think of them every time I read this passage where the whole household gets saved. Here's something amazing. The little boy Gunner who ran away from school, first grade, well, they started attending church. They're still attending that church, very faithful. Gunner's told me, he goes, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a preacher. And I started crying from a potato chip thief to a preacher. <laughs> That'll be his book title one day. So here's the next picture of me and Gunner. I had him come up on stage one day and close our service out in prayer. But Gunner was so on fire for Jesus, he got involved in Awana, and shortly after that event took place, he would run into his class on, on, on Thursday morning, because we had one on Wednesday night, and tell his friends, guys, I, I read about this guy Paul last night in the Bible at my, my, my church. And Paul hated Jesus. But then he met Jesus, and now he loves Jesus. Once you meet Jesus, you'll love him. Isn't that amazing? And the Spirit of God lives in that little boy's heart, but it took that boy running away and doing some bad things. And if you think that you can't turn to Jesus because you're not right yet, you don't get right to come to Jesus. You go to Jesus and get right. And I've talked to many people who are in this room today who say they can't come to Jesus because they're sinners. That's who Jesus has come for. He has come for you. Will you come to Jesus and let him make you right before the Father by accepting the free gift of salvation? Jesus, uh, Gunner, Gunner would not go to children's church because he wanted to watch the preacher preach and learn how to be a preacher. So he would sit there and take notes. True story. Number two way we can apply this to our lives is this, and this is such a beautiful principle for prayer. So many of you I know are prayer warriors that you don't have to be near a person to pray for a person, but you do need to be near Jesus. That man wasn't near his son, but he was near the one that mattered most. He was near Jesus. 
And when you, want, you and I want to pray for people who are far off from us, we just draw near to Christ and we pray for those people. It doesn't matter if they're across the room or across the world. Who has the Lord put on your heart to pray for? You don't have to be next to them, but make sure you're next to the Lord. And pray to the Lord. And pray for people to know God. You don't even have to know their name or zip code. You could pray for that cashier you just had at the grocery store for that person's salvation. Or for your mailman or your neighbor who you don't know, the Lord knows who you're talking about. And when you and I go to Jesus, we have to believe that he is listening and he is working on our behalf. Space is not a limitation for the Lord, nor is time. Third and finally is this, we're going to wrap up, is that spending time with the Lord and his word will strengthen your faith. Spending time with the Lord and his word will strengthen your faith. If your faith has been wavering, and all of our struggle with wavering faith from time to time, we need to get in the Word. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We do this through confession. The first and most important step to draw near to God is through repentance. What sin is hindering your walk with God today? You could confess that right now. You could repent of that sin and turn to Jesus. And maybe you've never turned to Christ. Today could be the day. Once and for all, you could turn to Jesus. And listen as I read the final verse. We're going to close. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, with confident faith, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Gunnar and his family and the the officials' family and how you're able to use circumstances to draw people to you for salvation. Lord, perhaps there's someone here that has a crisis faith right now. They're seeking Jesus because uh, there's an emergency. It's a 911 time in their life. God, help them to cry out to you and let their faith increase. Father, just as we saw faith increase for this man and his whole family, give them faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Give them salvation. And Father, for each of us, let us honor you in everything we think, say, and do. Let us confess our sin before you. Let us repent and turn away from evil and wickedness. And let us be the people you've desired us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.